Amen. Take your Bibles, if you would, this morning and turn to John chapter 12, and we'll continue where we left off a couple weeks ago in John chapter 12. And at this time, we'll dismiss the children four years old through fourth grade. You want to head on out the back? Be in prayer for our children as they leave. Today, their lesson is on the fact that only Jesus is the one who can save, and that's a uh, that's an important message that children must grasp. And so uh, as you see him leave in the room, I hope that you'll continually pray for them. Uh, the Lord will teach them these truths at a young age. And uh, thank you for those of you who take part in that teaching ministry. It's so very important. John chapter 12, we, it starts out, well, John chapter 11 was all about Lazarus being raised from the dead. An amazing miracle that Jesus performs uh, over a man who had been dead for four days. And uh, this had gained a lot of, well, there was a lot of people there for the funeral. We, through, through our understanding, we would think that Lazarus, is an, Lazarus was an influential man. And uh, many had come to grieve with Mary and Martha. And, of course, Jesus comes. He delays his coming on purpose, and then he comes and raises Lazarus from the dead. And then Jesus has dinner with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus shortly after. Uh, there at the beginning of chapter 12, Jesus is in Bethany, a city about two miles away from Jerusalem, uh, having dinner at a house. We think, believe it's at the house of Simon the leper, as we read in Matthew chapter 26 today. And he has dinner with them. And this is where uh, Mary comes and takes that very expensive alabaster box of spikenard and breaks it over Jesus and anoints him. And, of course, we read this morning the disciples' reaction, right? It was negative. It was, it was uh, uh, they were disgusted at the waste. This spikenard would have cost, by today's standard, about $65,000, and they poured it on a man and into the dirt in, in a minute, right? And so they're frustrated and uh, the context there of Matthew 26 gives us the understanding that from that, by the way, in John chapter 12, Judas is the one frustrated because he said we could have sold that and put the money, you know, to feed the poor. And, of course, we know that, that his, his true interest isn't in helping people. And so then um, Jesus rebukes the disciples and tells them this was done in preparation for my death. And we'll come back to this. Uh, in the sermon, but he says, this was in preparation for my death. And then uh, from that point, it says that in Matthew, that Judas goes out and meets with the high priest and barters for Jesus' life. Uh, this, we, we, we compared it last time. We said the spikenard was worth, you know, what we'd say, $65,000. It was a, year, a year's pay, wage, right? And so if we liken that to today, $45,000, $65,000. And uh, Judas goes out and betrays Jesus for a month's pay. So it didn't even the value of Jesus in Judas's mind was far less uh, than that perfume. And uh, so J Judas is working, of course, with the Pharisees here to betray Jesus. And this is where we're going to pick up today. And we come to this uh, triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Jesus is now going from Bethany up to the city of Jerusalem, to celebrate the Passover. Now, if you remember, he's in Bethany because not too long ago, he was basically chased out of, or he left Jerusalem because they were trying to kill him. 
And now he's not going up quietly. He's going up with great, great pomp and circumstance, in a sense, to Jerusalem. So let's pick up our reading right there at John, uh, John chapter 12, and we'll start reading in verse 12. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna! Blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not his disciples at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they these things that were written of him, and that they had done these things unto him. The people, therefore, that was with him, when he called Lazarus out of the grave and raised him from the dead, bear record. For this cause the people also met him, for they had heard that he had done this miracle. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world is gone after him. We'll end our reading, therefore, today. What we have then before us is a very important chapter in the events of Jesus' life that will establish his claims to be the Messiah, the true King of Israel, the Deliverer. Interestingly enough, we are going to see that Jesus is coming to establish himself as the Messiah, not just for Israel, but really for all people, for all whose lives have been touched by the plague of sin and touched by the promise of the gospel. This is truly a triumphal entry. However, this triumphant entry is not what many would have expected, or, as we'll see, what not what many wanted. Excitement will soon be turned to frustration and, and disappointment, and, and actually by the end of the week, this excitement will be turned into great anger. And so today I'd like us to consider what is happening in this chapter based on what we have learned throughout the whole book of John. And I believe that we can understand the crowd, having looked at John and gone through the miracles of Jesus and the response of the Jewish leaders and the response of the crowd to Jesus' teaching. I think we can enter into the crowd uh, in what they're doing and their excitement, but I think we'll need to step back then and look at it from Jesus' point of view and see from his point of view why he does not share that same excitement. Remember, Jesus is heading into Jerusalem for what will be the last few days of his life. And, and we understand these things, and we can look at this passage, and, 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 and from history, we can understand what's going on, but think about it also from the disciples' perspective. They're not totally comprehending it. Even, even what was just written here in John 12, it says that when they got this, this donkey for Jesus... And sat him on it, and he goes up to Jerusalem. They didn't realize what was happening, but it was after Jesus ascended into heaven that they remembered, and they remembered the significance of it. And really, that's where we are today. We get to be a part of, of the disciples' understanding after Jesus ascends into heaven. I think that gives us uh, that perspective as well. However, I want to be careful. What I really want to do in this chapter is take some time to look at worship. This morning, we came into this building and we are worshiping but i'll tell you worship is a popular thing is it not i mean if we just consider the idea of worship worship is is universal worship is being carried out of course today in american churches 
in, in varying different ways, but actually worship is happening from all people all the time. The question is, what are you worshiping and how are you worshiping it? Right? Worship is a part of every religion. Worship is a part of non-religion. Some people are out today at the beach worshiping. Not sure what, but they're worshiping. Okay, and so as Jesus goes from Bethany to Jerusalem, there's a whole lot of worship going on. And I think we need to step back and judge ourselves in a sense in what we call worship and that we would not slip into the same category of false worship. And I'd like to take time today to look at that. Really, what I want us to do is allow God's word to run its course in our lives and fulfill its purpose as stated in John chapter 20. Remember the whole purpose of the book of John? Let me read it to you from John 20 verse 31. These things are written unto you that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ. By the way, the word Christ there is the same idea of Messiah. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life Through his name. I pray that as we go out today, having spent time in John 12, we will be living the life that God brought Jesus to give us through worship, knowledgeable, heartfelt worship. So look at the setting. We've kind of gone through some of this. Jesus is coming away from Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. But as he's going, all these people from Bethany that were there to mourn and people who had been attracted by this miracle are are congregating. Of course they're congregating. They're coming from all over Israel, and they're headed up to Jerusalem. And Bethany is right there on the main path. And so you can imagine this, this. There's a great many people leaving Bethany with Jesus. Um. The place here is is just about two miles, and the Passover celebration has started and is in full swing. And and they would say that in Jerusalem during the Passover, there would be over a million people that had gathered to take part in this, uh, one of the highest feasts of Jewish culture. And actually, there's two great crowds. There's this crowd of of people from the funeral and, for, and, and have been attracted to Jesus and who are also coming up to Jerusalem. But it tells us in John that there's a great crowd in Jerusalem that hears Jesus is coming. And so they head out of Jerusalem, grabbing palm branches. They head out of Jerusalem to meet Jesus on the way. So you've got this converging happening of great crowds. There could have been, I, I read commentators, and nobody knows, but some people are saying there could have been hundreds of thousands of people in this situation, okay? I, I don't know. I've been to a couple stadiums in my life, not many, where there were less than 100,000, and it's exciting when everybody's cheering the same thing at the same time for the same team. Of course, if you go to a, the other one, it's not as exciting when people around you are cheering for the other team. But So, so here's what's happening. This massive crowd is, is they're excited. It's the Passover. The Passover was a joyous time. Right? And, and, it, and it's an exciting time, and so they're just, this crowd is pumped up. Right? And here Jesus is the focal point in the midst of them, riding into Jerusalem on a young donkey. By the way, the significance of that we're not going to spend a lot of time on, but most conquering kings don't come in on a colt of a donkey. They come in on a horse. Right? But Jesus is coming in as the prince of peace, and a donkey was Uh, the expression of peace in that regard. And you just heard it sung, king of humility. Jesus is not coming in as the conquering king in a sense here. And yet he's coming in as the conquering king in a whole different way. And we'll look at that. The timing is perfect. 
The timing of this situation is perfect. The time is right for Jesus to accomplish the Father's will in his work of atonement. Jesus, through his sovereign power, has ordained this time. And even though sinful men underneath the, 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 the power of Satan has tried desperately to throw off this timing, Jesus knows what he's doing. And, and by the way, Jesus' triumphal entry is part of Jesus' plan to make sure things happen the way they're supposed to happen. Think about it. All the way back to Jesus' birth. And the, the wise men coming to Herod and Herod saying, hey, come back and tell me where this king of the Jews is so I can worship, right? And when the, when the wise men didn't come back and tell him, oh, he got mad. And what did he do? He went out and killed babies. He killed every baby two years and younger in that city. Uh, we, we don't know that kind of brutality. And that was all meant to kill Jesus. And of course, Jesus and his family escaped into Egypt, as was prophesied. But all through his life, they try to kill Jesus. We've gone through twice in, in uh, the book of John, where once they try to push him off a cliff, and Jesus would just walk straight through the midst. And then not too long ago in Jerusalem, they picked up stones to stone him. But it wasn't the right way, and it wasn't the right time. And Jesus is in control. And Jesus departs from them. But now it is the time. But you know what? They don't even want this to be the time now. They're planning to kill Jesus, but what we read in Matthew 26 was they want to do it after the feast quietly. Remember that read this morning? Let's not do it during the feast days. Let's do it afterwards quietly. But that's not how it's supposed to happen. It's supposed to happen on the Passover. It's supposed to happen at the time of the sacrifice, the Passover sacrifice, where the lamb, the, the, the sacrifice for atonement takes place on an altar not too far away on the hill called Golgotha, the true Lamb of God is being sacrificed for the sins of the world, right? This is how it's supposed to happen. And so how do you, how do you get it to happen that way? Well, you come into Jerusalem with great pomp and circumstance. Jesus has a plan. The crowd doesn't know this, though. The crowd is super excited. They're, they're, they're wanting to crown Jesus king, The Old Testament prophecies are being fulfilled one after another. Jesus knows what is happening, and he is actually, I don't want to say he's aggravating the Pharisees, but Jesus is on a timeline to fulfill the Father's will, and nothing is going to throw that off. It's easy for us to get tunnel vision uh, at the events in front of us, but let's not forget that God has been moving all history to this point. We've just come from Sunday school where we're learning about Genesis chapter 1 through 11. And you know, what the, you know what the purpose of Genesis 1 through 11 is? Is to bring about this event in history. Where Jesus Christ would become the ark. And all who are in the ark of Jesus Christ are saved from the wrath of God. And the destruction that comes on sinful man. God sees all of history. And when we read this passage with a fuller understanding, we don't get caught up in the crowd. Uh, our experience of deep disappointment isn't there when Jesus doesn't go and throw off the Romans. We see it from a historical standpoint. We see it from a redemptive standpoint, and we rejoice. But you know what we fail to do? We fail to do that in 2021. You know, Jesus is still working in 2021 in a very specific timeline to bring about his perfect will. Remind yourself of that when you get frustrated with the administration. Remind yourself of that when you think that America is going to hell in a handbasket. 
that actually might be God's, it is actually part of God's plan. Right? Now, I'm not trying to be a doomsday person here, but come on, we just, in, in, in Sunday school, we're talking about the rainbow that God created, the beautiful prism that comes with, with the rain to, to show that God has made a covenant with us that he will not destroy us. And what does the world do with that? Hey, it's June, right? Let's use God's promise and, and pervert it as an expression of rebellion against God, right? And, and, and oh, man, if, I tell you what you know, Mark Rowland does, he gets angry and bitter toward people. You know why? Because I, I fail to step back and see that God is in control and moving history to his timeline in his perfect will to bring about his perfect plan. You know, there's some day that I'll look back at 2021 and be like, oh, man, that is awesome how we did that. You know what it takes? It takes faith. Faith is become, and, and I want you to remember this, faith is going to become an instrumental part of your worship. Faith. In that God. So we're called here to trust and obey as evidence of faith in God's sovereign control. Look at the momentum of this crowd. Huge crowd merging together as Jesus comes through it. And look what they're saying. Look at at, at verse 12 here. Many people were coming to the feast and they heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. Now at face value, when you read these words, if we were to cut this out, Hosanna, blessed is the king that cometh in the name of the Lord and put it on the wall behind us and didn't look at the context of it, it would be exciting, right? In fact, it would be Psalm 118. And the children of Israel, as they as they go up to Jerusalem every year for the Passover, sing what's called the Hillel. And it's, these, it's Psalm 116, 117, and 118. And they're songs of praise. They're songs of prophecy that there is a deliverer coming. The Passover lamb, just as we were spared from Egypt, so we are going to be spared and, and delivered by the Messiah. And so they're singing these things. And it sounds great, but Jesus doesn't take it that way. I wonder if that's ever happened in church. Where things sounded great and biblical, and Jesus rejects them as worship. Look what they're saying. Hosanna. The word Hosanna means help, I pray, or save now, I pray. If you look at your bulletin, it says it right in there. Save now. This is the, the, the cry out, Hosanna, uh, save us, we pray. The Jews knew that the Messiah was promised. They knew that Jesus had done the work that only a Messiah could do. They they, they saw him heal the blind. They saw him heal the lame. They, They had heard that he had raised the dead. These were all attributed in the Old Testament to the Messiah. This is him. The light bulb is going off in their minds. It's finally happening. All the Old Testament prophecies are being fulfilled. Today is the day. Can we enter into the Jewish nation's history and, and understand the excitement? The Jews have been the most persecuted people in history. They have been the most abused and murdered people in all of history. And as you study Jewish history, starting with, with the 400 years in Egypt up until the Holocaust, and even in the news in the past few weeks, 
right? The Jewish nation is the most persecuted nation in all of history. And here these oppressed people who right now during this time are underneath the pagan godless oppression of the Romans, now the Messiah is coming. Do you think you'd be excited? I see how excited you guys get over elections. And we have no idea. Right? This would have been... People are hopeful here. Not, they're not just hopeful for themselves in that day. They're hopeful for their history as a nation. They're hoping to be restored to that same prominence when David and Solomon were in charge. And here, this could be the day. The problem is, is Jesus doesn't share this excitement. Jesus isn't impressed. Why? Doesn't Jesus want to be the king? Isn't he the king? Didn't he say he was the king? Is Jesus the king of the king of Israel? Is he the son of God? Is he the one that should be lifted up? Yes, but there's a problem here. There's a disconnect. Something something's wrong. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. By the way, the triumphal entry is recorded in all four gospels. And here we see something happening. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus is not responding in the same way that the crowd is. Verse 36, and he went up and they spread their clothes in the way. Luke 19, 37, and when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. I mean, we call that worship, by the way, rejoicing in the mighty works that God has done saying, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. So, so do you see it? I mean, these people are excited. Jesus' own disciples are, hey, this was the right choice. I'm glad I followed him. By the way, where are they going to be by the end of the week? They're excited, right? And the, the, the Pharisees are saying, uh, Jesus, don't you realize what they're saying? They are calling you the Messiah. And Jesus accepts the worship. He accepts the praise. In fact, he tells the Pharisees, if they'd be quiet, the rocks would break out. I, I've, as a kid, ever since I was a kid, I'm like, man, I wish everybody would have been silent for like a minute. Right? I'd love to see that. He's the God of all nature. And, and, and so look what happens, though, because it doesn't stop there. Verse 40 in, uh, of Luke 19, and, or excuse me, 41, it says, And when he was come near, he beheld the city and shouted with excitement. Is that what it says? It doesn't say that. It says he wept. That, that's typically not what you want to see from your excitement and the one you're excited in, you don't want to see them weeping, right? Saying this, Jesus said this, If thou hadst known even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes, for the day shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, encompass thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground. 
and thy children within thee, and thou shalt not, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. This is anticlimactic, is it not? Here Jesus comes, maybe he's coming over the ridge and looking down onto Jerusalem, and the crowds are just singing out, and Jesus is weeping, saying this, You missed it? You missed it. Oh, if you would have only known the peace that is coming to you. Oh, if you only would have known the truth of the Messiah. Oh, if you would only wake up and recognize who I really am. But you have missed it. And there's coming a day not too long from now where they will lay down every building in this city and they will cut your children down with these buildings. And he's weeping for them. Jesus, didn't you hear what they're saying? They're quoting scripture. Don't you hear that they're, they're, they're singing out messianic prophecy from the Psalms? They're worshiping you, aren't they? You know, I wonder, if, I wonder if Jesus were to go from church to church physically this morning and stand on the stage or stand in the back and look at the people called his people that are shouting hosannas. I wonder what his response would be. You see, there's something very false about the worship of the Jews here. There's something very misguided. There's something very impersonal. There's something that isn't right. Why can't Jesus just accept their praise and be their king? I mean, he's God, isn't he? He He's God of everything. He can change his plan. He can do what he wants, and it's righteous because it's him. God can just do this, right? Why can't Jesus just say... Let's go to Pilate's house, right? Storming the Capitol in a different way, right? Why can't he do that? He's he's Jesus. He can do that, right? Listen, for Jesus to accept their praise and be their king at this point would be to damn them to hell. Do we recognize that? To damn their souls and all eternity... Man would be lost. Why? Because as Jesus heads in, in a triumphal way, he heads in to pay for sin. My sin. As Jesus rides that donkey into Jerusalem, he is going in not to be king in charge of the government. He's going in to be the sacrifice to God the Father's wrath. Death must be defeated. Sin must be paid for. The eternal cannot be sacrificed on the altar of the immediate. But I tell you what, all across churches today, people are sacrificing the truth of sin and the truth of the Savior on the cross for songs that say, Hosanna! I'm telling you, Jesus does not accept false worship. Worship that does not recognize who he is, and why he came. You know, at church, we want people to be comfortable. We want people to be excited about coming. We want people to visit and feel accepted and, 
and welcomed. And I tell you what, we do great damage when we compromise the true Messiah so that people are comfortable in a church service. And Jesus doesn't accept that as worship. Look at the plan of Jesus here. Why is Jesus even allowing them to exalt him? You know they tried to do this once before? Do you remember back in John chapter 6? It was only like two years ago. Go back to John chapter 6. An amazing miracle has just happened in John chapter 6. Jesus took five loaves and two fish and fed what we said could have been a multitude up to fifteen or 20,000 people, right? There were 5,000 men, it says, and, and women and children could have been there. Uh, we don't know exactly what the final number was, but it mentions 5,000 men. And so here Jesus performs this amazing miracle, and look at verse 13 of John 6. It says, Therefore they gathered them together and filled 12 baskets with the fragments and five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. And when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into the mountain himself alone. Huh. This is interesting, right? Jesus goes out and performs a miracle that only the Messiah could do, and the people are excited right? And they, they want to take him and make him king. Don't we preach that every Sunday here? That as we come to the word of God, that Jesus should be the king, right? What's the problem? You see, they want a king that keeps making bread. And people will die eating bread. Literally. Don't just do carbs, okay? <laughs> people will We'll, we'll, well, we, I don't know if you can even remember this, but we use this illustration, right? So I go to a bank with my dad, and, and, and we're making a deposit, and the owner of the bank comes to me and says, hey, listen, I'm done with the banking stuff. I'm going to give you this bank. And in that vault right there, there is 150,000 bars of pure gold right in there. And I'm giving it to you and your dad. You guys can have it. Dad, this is amazing. I love the bank. When I come to the bank, that lady gives me a sucker. Can we get rid of this yellow stuff and and, and just fill this thing with suckers? Right? You remember that? That's what's happening here. Jesus is coming to provide eternity in heaven with the Father. And they want bread. They want him to be the king of bread. Here's a sucker. Oh, I love the bank. Right? Jesus didn't accept that. And, you know, the same thing is happening here again. But he accepts their worship to push the timeline of the Father to the crucifixion. Because they're going to get really upset when he doesn't march on the Capitol. What will this triumphal entry really accomplish? Well, remember the Pharisees had put out an APB on Jesus. They had said, if anybody sees Jesus, report it to us because we're going to kill him. Right? And here comes Jesus with a trumpet. Just in case you didn't see me, here I am. Right? I mean, this is what's happening. 
The Pharisees are seeking to put him to death privately. But God's plan is that just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness so that everybody who had experienced the snake bite of poison, when they looked on that serpent that had been lifted up, so Jesus would be lifted up that all who look on him might be saved, right? It has to be public. And here's what's happening. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem after being sung the Messiah, but he understands the nature of their belief. Remember back in in John chapter 2, it says, many believed on Jesus, but he did not commit himself to them because he knew all men, and he he needed not that any should testify of man because he knew what was in man, right? So as they're singing his praises as their Messiah, he's weeping because he knows the nature of unbelief that is blinding their eyes and will pervert their heart in just a few days where they will stand up and yell something very different than Hosanna, right? He knows their heart. He knows the unbelief. Don't be, don't be satisfied with having biblical words coming out of your mouth. Pagans can do that. Don't be satisfied with your Christianity if you come to Calvary Bible Church and sing songs and dress pretty. Because those are not the things that Jesus is longing for. That is not the true exaltation of the king. Jesus knew their hearts. He knows our hearts. He knew, they were, he knew what they were believing in. By the way, this is the pattern all throughout John. Jesus performs miracles The miracles are entertaining, they're exciting, they're interesting. Jesus teaches them difficult truth about God the Father, about Jesus as the Son of God, that the Jews are sinners in need of a Savior, and what do they do? They hate him. Oh, they like the sideshow, but they hate the truth. Welcome to church, right? They like the loaves and fishes, they like the healing, they like the raising of the dead, but they hate who Jesus is and what he has really come to do. And this, I I, I don't know if I can make this connection, but I want to try to make it for you here out of John chapter 12 where, where Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Okay, let's just go back a few verses in John chapter 12 and hear Jesus, or hear Mary is worshiping. We talked about true worship, right? Here's an expression of true worship, and listen to what happens here. Mary comes to Jesus, and and, and Mary breaks this box of spikenard and and anoints Jesus and, and reaps to herself strong criticism, right? Verse... Five of, of John chapter 12. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? You really want to worship Jesus? Go help the poor. Right? But Jesus rejects the criticism of the disciples, even though it is couched in concern for the poor. And let me just tell you what this teaches about what's coming with the children of Israel singing his praises. Jesus doesn't hate the poor. Jesus loves the poor. Jesus doesn't want them to not serve or give to the poor. In fact, what does he say? Look what he says. 
Verse 8, or verse 7, Jesus said, Let her alone against the day of my burying hath she kept this. For the poor always you have with you, but me ye have not always. And listen to what I believe Jesus is teaching us about the true gospel. The true gospel causes us to love the poor. The true gospel causes us to minister to the poor. But when you come down to it, and you compare the death of Jesus Christ to helping the poor, don't sacrifice the eternal on the altar of the immediate. Don't you dare get wrapped up in community service at the expense of life-giving gospel because you can help feed the poor and it lasts for one day. It lasts for one meal. It lasts for one generation. But if Jesus isn't worshipped and if Jesus isn't the king of the heart, you can feed a person and he will perish eternally. Don't you criticize her for what she's done. She is preparing me to carry out the eternal gospel. Don't compare these two. By the way, Christians, as an aspect of our love for God, must minister to those around us. But don't ever make it equal. And don't ever make it the gospel. Let me tell you why. What did Jesus do when he rode into Jerusalem? Right? He's, he's on this, this donkey and Jesus rides in and he takes the Jews right up to Pilate's house. And he throws Pilate off the balcony and he brings down Roman oppression because they were slave owners and they, they, you talk about inequality, this is what's happening in Jerusalem right now. Is that what Jesus did? No. No, what Jesus did is he, he was on that donkey and he rode right to the poorest community of Jerusalem and he started creating bread out of rocks and he was feeding people. Right? That's not what he did. He didn't even go to the hospital to heal people. What did Jesus, where does Jesus go when he gets to Jerusalem? He goes to the temple. And what does he do? He cleanses it. You think that would tick a Jew off? What's wrong with you, Jesus? Don't you see the real problem here? Look at these Romans. And Jesus said, no, you have missed the real problem. The real problem is your heart hates God. I did not come so that people could eat equally or make equal income or all be healthy, wealthy, and happy. I came to save you from hell. And where is that being perverted the most? In what you call a house of worship. You see, what if Jesus came to America... And there was this big motorcade. Would he drive up to Washington and let him have it? Man, I'd be in that, I'd be in that motorcade. Right? You know what Jesus would do? He'd come to Calvary Bible Church. And we'd say, whoa, Jesus, we're conservative. That is an organ. Okay, come on. Let me just tell you that, that Jesus is not impressed with scriptural worship in the sense that we use Bible verses. He's not impressed that we 
are careful about what we wear because we want to be modest. He's not impressed with how we run church. He wants your heart. And the heart of the Jews for so many centuries had been far from God. So far that he said this, come on, quit. Why are you sacrificing these animals? I'm sick of it. I'm so fed up with sacrifice. What, do I want more blood? I'm so tired of your praises. I'm tired of you singing the Psalms. Because your heart is for yourself. What did these Jews want to do? They wanted Jesus to go with them to the Romans' house and to throw them out. And, and, and you know why? Because the Passover would be awesome for us if, it was in, if, if we were in charge. And if Jesus could come and make us prominent, oh, wouldn't that be amazing? And if Jesus could restore the former glory to Israel, this is the guy we need. This is our man. And you start thinking it like that, and you start realizing these people weren't worshiping God. They were worshiping themselves. Have you ever come to church and worshiped yourself? And I tell you what, as I meditated on this, I thought, man, I have preached to the glory of self. What a travesty. How immoral that you'd use God's word to glorify yourself. We want Jesus in a position of power so that we can rid the world of poverty and injustice and racism and income equality and oppression and hate speech. But this is so short-sighted. The hearts of the rich and the poor reject Jesus. The hearts of just men are deceitful and desperately wicked. Racism is the natural inclination of the sinful heart. Let's deal with that. Let's let Jesus deal with that. You see, in Luke 19, Jesus goes to the temple and he says, This is my father's house. (laughs) Jesus, you're a Jew, right? Don't you dare take sides against us. We're on the same team. Jesus, don't you dare make me... Me, a sinner, I'm a child of the king. I'm a child of Jesus. I am a Jew. I'm a chosen one. And Jesus said, if you will not believe in me, you will likewise perish. Oh, they hated that. You see, their worship was not for God the Father. They didn't even recognize when God showed up in their church. They didn't recognize when Jesus came to the temple. That was what the whole temple was set up for. That's what the whole sacrificial system was pointing to. That's why people were selling doves and sheep. And, 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 and then that sale became ex- exploitative and, and, and perverse. And, and then people just did it because they had to. Because that's what you do to be a good Jew. And, and uh, when Jesus showed up, they didn't even know the sacrificial lamb when they saw him. They missed it. What terrible disappointment to the crowd of worshipers. What a letdown. What an anticlimactic end to that triumphal entry. So I just want to end with two points. 
the characteristics of false worship versus the characteristics of true worship. How can we identify false worship, whether it be in our lives, in our church, in our community? How do we identify false worship? Number one, ignorance toward the nature, character, and will of God. They rejected the nature of Jesus Christ. He is God. They rejected it. They confused the character of Jesus, his mercy and his grace, by thinking it was for their promotion to get about their will. His kindness, his grace, and his mercy are so that I can continue to pursue what I want. They totally totally rejected the will of God, which was their salvation. And in fact, by the end of the week, these worshipers are exposed for who they really are, rebels against the will of God. The first characteristic of false worship is an ignorance toward the nature, character, and will of God. Another characteristic of false worship is love for blessing and not a love for the blesser. They wanted peace to pursue their lust. They did not care for the Prince of Peace. They wanted salvation from those who ruled over them. They did not want Jesus to rule over them. They wanted prominence. They did not want a knowledge of their sin. They did not want a true knowledge of their God. They did not want to know about true salvation. What did this result in? It resulted in actual rebellion and idolatry. False worship is rebellion against the true God. And at the base of it, it's idolatry to self. Worship is popular because worship can be very self-serving. Worship can be comfortable and exciting when its end goal is my own comfort and excitement. Does, do church services need to be awesome? Hmm, loaded question. Yes and no. Yes in the sense that you are, you are worshiping your Savior. No in the sense that we've made it awesome. He makes it real. God says over and over again throughout Scripture, I don't want your sacrifice. I don't want your worship when your heart is far from me. I don't want your worship when your heart refuses to submit to me as Lord. I don't need your singing. I don't need your sacrifices. I don't need your giving. I don't need your church attendance. I don't need your Sunday school teaching. I don't need your philanthropy. I don't want any of that. If it doesn't come from a heart of worship, a heart given to God, the true God, I want your heart, I want your love. And then, you know what's amazing? Everything that we just talked about, your singing, though it be off-key, your sacrifice, though it be small, your teaching, though it be just, you know, Lord, please help me stay together today while I teach these little kids. All of that becomes something that God says, oh, man, I delight. I delight in that. Where when we do it without God as the God of our heart, he hates it. He disdains it. So then what are the characteristics of true worship? Well, it comes from a true knowledge of the nature and character and the will of God. Jesus tells us what true worship is in John chapter 4. He says, he's talking to the woman at the well. He says, the hour is coming when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is seeking those kind of people to worship him. God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit 
and in truth. Churches that are big on worship and small on preaching and teaching don't know who they're worshiping, right? I mean, how many times have I given the illustration that if my wife is allergic to red roses and every anniversary, because I love red roses, I show up and shove them in her face and say, it's our anniversary, I love you. There's a point where love says, wait a second, that actually doesn't work. Though it may be accepted generally as a rule, you don't know your wife if you keep causing her to go into anaphylactic shock. I thought she just loved me so much. She fell over. All right. And yet churches gather together and they shove sinful misunderstanding, perverted worship in God's nose and say, this is for you. We're singing to the audience of one. And God says, I actually just want your heart. Quit giving me sin. Quit giving me external expression and coveting your heart away to what I have not given you. Ignorance to the person, the nature, the character, and the will of God is characteristic of false worship, but then a knowledge of it is characteristic of true worship. That's why we want to major on teaching God's word here. So that when we come to passages like this, we say, your pastor struggles with idolatry. God help us. Love for the person of Christ. Jesus tells us that worship is according to spirit. That means sincere and heartfelt worship. As we know God, our love for God will grow. The loving heart rejoices to worship. And I believe that there were true worshipers on this road singing the same praises. They understood their desperate need. Remember, John was preaching a gospel of baptism. You know who he was baptizing? Jews. Remember this? Why would a Jew be baptized? They baptized Gentiles who wanted to be part of the Jewish nation, and so it would be a proselyte baptism. And they'd take a Gentile and say, we know you really aren't a Jew, but we'll accept you into the covenants that are given to the Jewish nation by baptizing you. And so when a Jew came to be baptized, they'd be like, what is this? And John said, this is a baptism of repentance. It's recognizing that you're a sinner and you need a savior. Remember that? There were Jews that believed. There were Jews that truly worshipped because they saw the Lamb of God coming to take away their sin. In fact, they were in the temple at his birth, too. Remember Simon? Remember that guy? He rejoiced to see his Savior, Mary, the mother of Jesus, who said, I'm a sinner and need a Savior. That Mary rejoiced. Love for the person of Christ, submission to his word and his will. One last passage I want you to look at, 1 John, right at the back of your Bibles. 1 John, chapter 5. Listen to the difference between true worship and false worship. There's something going to be in this passage that is going to expose the heart of two different people that are sitting in the same service singing the same biblical song. Here it is. 1 John 5, 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him... That begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. You love the people around you. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and... Man, why can't we just put a period earlier in a sentence? 
We know that we're the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. And I love this verse. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Let me just say this morning, if you're here and you struggle with this Christian life of being do's and don'ts, maybe it's because you don't know Jesus. You see, when Jesus lives within the heart of a person, he changes those commands in Scripture to be joyful obedience. I love to abstain from. I love to put on these things. I want more of Christ's likeness. I I struggle with the desire for the world, but God, you've put in my spirit a hatred for sin in the world, and I don't want that, and, and I rejoice to obey. You remember yourself as a kid when your parents told you to do something, you were like, his commandments are not grievous to the worshiper, the true worshiper. They rejoice. Whosoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Submission to the word and will of God is a characteristic of true worship. Then lastly, obedience from a loving heart. Let's not be confused like the Jews. Let's not sing all glory, laud, and honor to the Redeemer King if we're going to leave these doors and pursue our own kingdom. You see, the man who pursued his own kingdom died one night, and Jesus said, you missed it. I will require an answer of you, and you have been found wanting You are not rich toward God. Let's not be like King Saul who sacrificed to God with a heart of rebellion that was called like the sin of witchcraft. I would hope that if you ever saw me up here doing some kind of satanic ritual practice or if I came with like a, I don't know, pentagram or something tattooed to my forehead, you'd be like... Where's John Hole and Brad? Get him out of here, right? It's offensive to even think about it, and yet the heart that comes and says, I will go my own way, all glory, laud, and honor, God says, why are you practicing witchcraft in my house? Let's not be like the Jews who, because Jesus did not ride into Jerusalem and perform their will, by the end of the week they said, we will not have this man to rule over us. We, will have, we have one king, and it's Caesar. What? You see what happened? When you reject the truth, you'll take any lie. Okay? June is Pride Month. comes from rejecting The truth and the sanctity of life and the sanctity of marriage. And when they do that, there's no end to the perversion, right? We will not have Jesus as our king. In fact, even though we hate the Romans, we don't hate him as much as we hate God. And man will destroy himself in rebellion against the one person who can save him. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. Obedience from a loving heart is what is required for worship. 
God help us. That's a work of the Spirit. That's a work of the Word of God. That's, that's what we need. So was the triumphal entry triumphant? Oh, yes, it was. Jesus uses this crowd to bring about his Father's will, the eternal plan of salvation. And what is about to take place in Jerusalem in about a month and a half. Let's remember what happens in a month and a half in Jerusalem. Thousands of people become true worshipers of Jesus. Thousands. That verse we read at the very beginning of the passage where Peter gets up and says, Jesus is the cornerstone, the one you killed is the cornerstone, and there's salvation only through Jesus. Thousands believed and were saved. Jesus saw the future. Jesus didn't care about the praise of the present. He said, I must perform the Father's will. And because of that, people in Myrtle Beach came to church today. And they truly worshiped their Savior, and they will worship him for eternity. Oh, I'm so thankful for the triumphant entry. That it wasn't about praise, it was about sacrifice. That it wasn't about exaltation as much as it was humiliation for me. Because I'm a sinner. Praise God. So as we come to the table of the Lord today, we come... As true worshipers, all right, we're going to come to the Lord's table in just a minute, so I'd like to transition to that. Can you come to the Lord's table and be a true worshiper this morning? Well, let me tell you how you can violate true worship in this very important aspect of worship. If you think somehow that Jesus died on the cross so that you can continue to pursue your sin don't take how offensive to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ if you think that you can come and take part of this simple juice and wafer because you were good this week don't take what an affront to a holy God who sacrificed his own perfect son because you can't do anything righteous on your own. If you come to the table of the Lord today because you're at church and this is what we do at church, don't take it. Just sit, ponder what's being said, ponder what's being sung, ponder what was read today. But don't just do it because you're here. What makes you accept, what, what brings us to what we call the table of the king, the table of the Lord? What brings us there? Jesus, his death, his perfect life, his grace, his mercy. If you can come in that sense to this table, God says, take it and eat it. Take it and drink all of it. My grace is sufficient for you. And guess what? When we partake in a humble, obedient, he commands this, way from the heart that rejoices not in ourselves but in Jesus Christ, a simple tasteless wafer, and I, it, I think it's juice, becomes a hymn of praise that exalts our Savior before God, and he says, that is a sweet sacrifice, that is worship. That is what I want. I want their hearts. 
and they love my son, and they obey his will. Can we come that way?